Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Michael Walma is the Cyber Foreign Policy Coordinator for Global Affairs Canada and generally regarded as the Dean of Cyber Diplomats. So we'll hear his insights and comments in today's interview. Hey, Michael, tell us what your day job is. My day job? Well, my day job, uh, I'm uh, the Cyber Foreign Policy Coordinator at Global Affairs Canada. But uh, in these COVID eras, I'm also... um, responsible for overseeing some of my children's homeschooling and doing a little bread baking on the side. <laughs> and and I, sh- I should say that Michael, I've known Michael, God, Michael, how long have we known each other since when you were chairing the uh, Roma Leon group uh, for the G8 way back when Canada hosted. Yeah, that was, that yeah, was I, I guess that was like 2008 or two, something along those lines. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and you now have the distinction of being at least one of the senior statespeople in cyber uh, in terms of having uh, the most longevity in this position. So congratulations on that and to Canada as well. Well, you know, I don't know if congratulations are in order. Maybe it's just that I'm not good for anything else anymore. So um, in a vain effort to steer this into a more serious channel, what are the issues that you're working on when it comes to international cybersecurity? What are the things you're looking at? I mean, we're doing we're doing a number of things. Um, some of it is actually domestic. And frankly, in terms of what's possible to do in a COVID era, it's actually uh, a lot of the domestic work is easier to manage than a lot of the international work. Hmm. But from an international perspective, what we're focusing on, obviously, is the UN processes. We're not a part of the GGE, and we've been focusing a lot of effort on the open-ended working group. But we've also been very active in um, other international settings, including NATO, where there's been a lot of discussion of cyber-related issues. We've been participating in the ARF, uh, work within the OAS. Um, all of this is happening virtually, of course. It's not, uh, not happening in person, much as we'd like it to. And I have to say that the fact that we aren't able to meet in person is really slowing down the processes, frankly. I, I, I don't think it's just at all possible to accomplish virtually what can be done in, in face-to-face. We're also working among like-minded to start to uh, put a little bit more effort into like-minded efforts with respect to um, questions around attribution, holding states to account. All of that work is continuing to happen in the background. And of course, we're, uh, we're gearing up for um, you know, a new relationship with the Biden administration. You know, the president has identified cybersecurity as one of his top priorities. So we're trying to sort out what that will mean for us in our bilateral relationship. That's a lot. That is a lot. One of the challenges that I know, you know, I had and and you still have is trying to get this topic more mainstream within your ministry, the foreign ministry, but within the government as a whole. How, How would you say that's going in Canada right now? 
Well, I, I got to say that it's really uh, cyber tech digital issues are, are on the top of everyone's agenda at this point. I don't think uh, a moment goes by where we aren't reading about something. Of course, the most recent was solar winds and the fallout that's still being felt about that. But, you know, we're still very cognizant of threats of foreign actors with respect to intellectual property theft. We also have seen action by state actors and state-sponsored actors with respect to COVID uh, research and response. You know, this, is, this isn't something that is stopping. And I think it's well recognized now at all levels of, of government, frankly, probably everywhere in the world, that this is uh, becoming one of the top issues for everyone. What, what I think is interesting is, is kind of the evolution and thinking around what, what this thread is. Like, Chris, when you and I were, were doing this early on, and Jim, you know, the same with the work in the, uh, the GGEs, you know, it was very much about sort of state on state, what constitutes use of force, how does international law apply. But of course, the evolution has been towards um, operations in the gray zone, things that don't uh, constitute as a use of force, and a shift from... Uh, not entirely, but uh, but a shift to, towards foreign interference, democratic interference, cyber-enabled activities that aren't necessarily cyber threats in nature, but through the nature of the internet and the reach that you have and the capabilities that you have in that sphere emerge as threats. We kind of divide that up as cyber threats, which are threats against networks and uh, critical systems, and then cyber-enabled threats or digital threats which are sort of the disinformation piece, the foreign uh, interference piece, where cyber techniques are used, but it's not the techniques themselves that are that are the problematic part. It's, it's what they're used to achieve. How do you think the relationship with the U.S. or the things you're working on will change? Are there particular things you're looking to amp up when this new administration is focused more on this issue? Not that the last administration avoided it completely, but it's clear this this administration wants to make it more of a priority. We had very good relationships with the past administration. We were able to achieve quite a lot with it as well. You know, the fact is, is that the threats um, haven't disappeared. There, there are many of the same threats that, that were before. Really, the, the focus on these issues isn't going to change. The importance that attaches to them isn't going to change. What really might change is, is the approach that you take in responding to them. But fundamentally, I don't perceive any sort of a real shift in what we're trying to achieve. It's really just going to be about about how we go about achieving it. So what do we expect differently from a Biden administration? I, I'm not sure, as I say, that it, it's really going to be all that hugely different. There will be a difference in tone, there will be a difference in manner, but, but we are really setting out um, to uh, go in the same direction that, that we've always been going. What I think, what I think has changed, frankly, is, is not necessarily so much what has happened in the US, as what has happened around the world, and particularly in Europe and, and other parts of the world, where the importance of these issues have risen on the agendas for others. You know, I know you were talking to Heli a little while ago and the work that they've done to raise this up in the agenda in, in Europe. You know, we've seen the emergence of uh, the EU cyber diplomacy toolbox and the work that they've been doing there. You know, I think what, what really is different now is that there is an opportunity to really bring a lot of these efforts together and to bring together a lot of players to to try and hammer out what as like-minded countries what uh, uh unified by a set of values democratic principles 
free trade principles, human rights principles. What can we do as a group to address these threats, these challenges? And I don't think that's necessarily a function so much of a change administration in the United States as a growing awareness globally of the urgency of getting along with this. So this comes up uh, sometimes under the label of the Cyber Deterrence Initiative, the idea of a new partnership. And you raised a couple of the tough issues. One of them is uh, attribution. What would be good standards of attribution for Canada that would let it take action as part of maybe some partnership with other countries? What is it you'd be looking for and how much would be stuff you'd need to rely on your own? How much would need to be confirmable? What's your thinking on attribution? Let me say two things on that. I mean, first off, you know, I think this goes a lot wider than kind of those those cyber acts. You know, I think we want to talk about supply chain issues. We want to talk about standards for cybersecurity and that sort of thing. But in terms of attribution, I, I have said that I actually hate the word attribution because attribution is such a loaded term. It has a particular meaning in international law. You find it in the UN Charter, and it's really linked very closely to, you know, states being confident in responding to a hostile act. And so much of what we're concerned about doesn't rise to that level. So, you know, the word attribution gets kind of bandied about, but really what it comes down to is the degree to which you have confidence in holding some sort of uh, another state to account for some kind of an act, which may or may not be use of force or, or uh, um, anything else in terms of international law. So, you know, for me, it's, it's very much about a, uh, a graduation, a continuum. If we were to believe that another state had used force against us through cyber means, then all of that, those questions around attribution kick in. But if what it is is something that doesn't rise to the bar of the use of force, then that kind of formal attribution doesn't, doesn't pertain. So what you're looking at there is, is you get right back into the realm of normal relations between states. Some kind of unfriendly act has taken place, something we don't like. What we do in response will uh, depend on a number of things, including our confidence in our belief that a particular actor carried it out. You know, if you have a lot of confidence and if the act is a very serious one, you know, that's going to tell you what kind of a response you want to take. If it's um, not necessarily quite so serious and, you know, you don't have 100% confidence in being able to attribute it to a particular individual or organ of the state, then your response is going to differ. But attribution is not black and white, and it doesn't pertain in the, in the very legalistic sense in all of the circumstances that we're concerned about. There's been a lot of criticism that despite all the efforts to do more collective action, we really haven't held some of the bad actors in cyberspace you know, accountable. It, in any in the U.S. in any administration so far, and I'd say globally, you know, what do you, how do you feel about that? And do you feel what do you think we should be doing? If if you agree, what do you think we should be doing more to hold bad actors accountable, uh, or are we at re- the right equilibrium now? Well, yes, we absolutely have to hold malicious actors to account for their activities. That applies inside of cyber as well as outside of cyber. And for me, the question is is very much how do you respond to you know, what you might describe as hostile acts by, by other states, which may or may not be cyber. And really, when we think about some of the, the, the states that we're concerned about in this space, our concerns with them extend beyond cyber into other realms. It's not just cyber, it is often cyber, but it's more than cyber. 
but really it's not so much about how do we hold states to account for malicious cyber acts is how do we get our heads around how we deal with these states that are acting in a hostile manner towards us in a variety of different ways. And so you could be responding to a cyber event, you could be responding to a chemical weapon use or an assassination or the theft of intellectual property, suborning of individuals. It really comes down to a more comprehensive approach. And it is indeed about imposing costs and you need to have a, a toolbox to respond to that. But I think what happens in cyber stays in cyber is something that we need to get away from. And the idea that the only acts that we're concerned about are our cyber related ones is one that constrains our thinking on how we're going to respond to these challenges posed by these states. But, but in terms of sort of where you go with that, I think the other thing that's equally true and is that no individual state with possible exception of the United States and perhaps the European Union can do this by themselves. And so it absolutely has to be about spreading the word, bringing others into the tent and encouraging others to take action in this space. You know, nobody is, I think, seriously contemplating the idea that we would have some sort of automaticity about this or that there would be a, um, a cyber NATO where, you know, there's some sort of collective defense response. I think really what it's about is it's variable geometry. It's about encouraging states to take a stand, to, um, to be able to move in the direction, to embolden them, to, to remove the the fear around the idea that you'd be subject to reprisals for being able to interact in this space. I don't think you have to worry about the Biden administration deciding on a go-it-alone approach. Uh, they've learned that lesson from the last guys. But when you were starting the conversation, you brought up a number of the regional organizations like ARF and OAS. How would you see that working with them at all? And of course, Canada is also in the uh, OSCE. So you you're you're in most of the big groups that look at cyber. How do you think they're going to move in this on these questions of consequences and responsibility? Well, different groups have different roles and responsibilities, and they have different histories and they have different patterns of work. When you raise the OSCE is a very interesting example. I mean, the OSCE has a long history of implementing confidence building measures in different areas of dialogue on security air, uh, issues. You know, that was what it was founded to do, and it's it's very, very good at it. So a conversation in the OSCE about, for example, confidence-building measures or about cyber threats is a very different conversation than the one you're going to have in the ARF or in the OAS. So, you know, what we're trying to do is play each um, organization to uh, its full potential. Where there are opportunities to do more, we want to do more. You know, I think we see that in the OSCE. The ARF has its own particular way of working. It moves in a different way. There, our focus is much more on awareness raising and building consensus around uh, a set of principles. In the OAS context, we find that there's a great deal of understanding and agreement on some of the basic principles around cyber stability, but it's really a question of of capacity, and I don't mean only just technical capacity, it's capacity among diplomats, it's capacities among um, strategic thinkers to start for them to develop their uh, their own national positions, which, which we think will be more or less in line with what we're trying to achieve. But each of these regional organizations have the advantage, in a sense, over the UN in that they do have 
existing processes, principles that bring them together. So in, in, a, in a lot of ways, they're more able to move at speed in ways that a universal body like the UN can. It does seem like Canada is playing a much bigger game in the last few years. I mean, in terms of funding a lot of things, a lot of discussions, I'm certainly grateful to Canada for the support it gives to the, the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, but also a lot of the other projects around the world. And I think that's incredibly valuable. Can you talk about that as part of your overall, at least what Canada's trying to do to influence or shape the discussion around the world? I guess what I would say on that score is is a couple of things. We're we're very proud of of the work that we do in this area. It's it you're you're generous to describe it as a larger program. I mean, we're coming off a very very small base, so anything that we do really does look like more in this space. But um, you know, we have a number of different objectives that we're trying to achieve with this, and one of them is is very straightforward: is a realization that improved cybersecurity in other countries is going to improve cybersecurity outcomes for us. So a lot of our assistance and a lot of our traditional assistance, particularly in um, in the Western Hemisphere, has been around developing cybersecurity policies, training of investigators, you know, the the more of a, a almost technical side. But but something that we've also been doing, which we've been very happy to do, is promoting the voices of women, raising gender issues in these discussions. We've been working with the UK and Australia and a couple of other countries to sponsor the participation of woman diplomats in UN negotiations, particularly the open-ended working group. And that's been an amazing success for us, we believe. Successful because for the first time ever in a, in a first committee uh, uh, setting, gender parity was achieved in representation around the table, which is, you know, Anybody who's been doing cyber for a long time will realize that that's quite an achievement. But also, um, you know, the these women are bringing a voice that I think needs to be heard, not just because they're women, but because they're also from the global south. And it's been very successful, I think, causing groups like the Open-Ended Working Group to start to deliver on, you know, its promise or its intention to be a more inclusive, more open body. So the more voices that are heard in that setting, and certainly the more women voices that are heard in that setting, uh, all to the better. I expect we all agree. It's been uh, amazing to see how there's some just very powerful voices from the developing world, particularly from Africa, but also Latin America, who are bring gender diversities. But since you brought it up, what do you think of the OEWG, not just in the text, which has just been released by the chair? It looks okay to me. But also in the future work, it's likely that the OEWG will be extended. Plus, you have a Russian initiative on international law. Where do you see the state of play moving in the UN? It's worth recalling, of course, that, that Canada, along with a lot of other countries, had opposed the creation of the Open Working Group in the first place. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the dueling resolutions that, that came forward in the last couple of general assemblies with respect to the establishment of a group of governmental experts vice uh, an open-ended working group. And, you know, most recently, of course, we had a Russian resolution that created a new open-ended working group before the report of the existing open-ended working group was even uh, negotiated, which seems like uh, a bit uh, of a preemptive move to to our minds. But the, the General Assembly voted for them. They were passed by a majority resolution, and we accept that happened. So, 
we want to see the open-ended working group be useful in this discussion. And certainly that there have been areas or criticisms of the of the GGE process, that it's been a bit too secretive, that it's been entirely state-led, that it only includes a small number, which, you know, I think um, our preference has been that to, to see the GGE go forward because, you know, more can be accomplished in smaller groups sometimes especially when it when it operates a little bit away from from a spotlight where you know it becomes difficult to move past publicly uh, positions you know but at the same time we do want to capitalize on the opportunities that the open-ended working group presents so one of the, you know some of the areas that we have thought that would be useful to the open-ended working group to to address or, or to take into account its working methods has been around the idea of the inclusion of, of other voices. So, you know, we did the, the work with the uh, women in cyber efforts, but we've also organized workshops and events to bring in non-governmental organizations, non-governmental stakeholders, business, but also academia and NGOs. The promise of the open-ended working group, the idea that it is open-ended and it was going to be open to more participants. So, mm-hmm. you know, we take that at face value. We've encouraged more states to participate, uh, including from the Global South. We've worked very hard to ensure that other voices are heard, including from the private sector, from non-governmental organizations, from academics. I have to say we've been pretty frustrated that they haven't been able to participate more directly in these discussions. But we found some pretty inventive ways to hold uh, side events and uh, workshops where we bring the text, we discuss the text with these stakeholders, and we encourage um, other states engaged in the negotiations to come and to listen to the views of these non-governmental players and to incorporate them into their own positions. You know, we did a, a workshop where we had seven working groups looking at different aspects of the report. And, uh, you know, we, we look to the states participating in that to try to integrate those views into their own submission, something that we have done. We had headed up a workshop on gender issues where we got a lot of good ideas, which we then reproduced in the effort uh, on the text. We're actually going to be holding another one in the next couple of weeks where we're going to be looking at the draft text and, and going over it to seek uh, non-governmental stakeholder views on, on, the, on the draft as it stands right now. Yeah, and I, I think that you know, I think there's a lot of angst before the open-ended working group started, uh, as you said. I think a lot of countries had some angst about it, but my sense is that it has been a good platform. You know, yes, the GG, just like the G8 was, is a good crucible for moving things through to a larger group. But the open-ended working group seems to have gotten more countries involved, more participatory at the country level, but still has been frustrating at the other stakeholder level. And I think the you know, Canada and I'd say Australia have probably been the two most innovative of trying to incorporate other stakeholders, even though that's not in the actual process itself, but sort of as a placeholder for it. So, so I don't know as you move forward in this next thing. I know there are proposals of plans of action and other things that there's a way you can see to do that, especially when some states object to it. The open-ended working groups, um, you know, they're created by a general assembly resolution. They tend to to work in you know, they, they, they do the General Assembly rules of procedure by default, unless there's something in, in the resolution that changes it or the group agrees to operate by other procedures. And we're kind of stuck with that. But at the same time, you know, we're pushing the envelope as much as we can in terms of trying to uh, bring in as many voices as we can into this. You know, I have to say that it is a little frustrating to us that it purports to be an open-ended working group, but then, you know, the reaction of states is to limit the number of voices that can be heard. 
which kind of puts lie to the premise of, a, of an open group. Maybe to pick up on one of the topics that uh, OEWG has wrestled with, what would be a useful CBM for you? What in a conversation with one of your OEWG colleagues, they said to me, you know, what's the point of having a hotline if the other side never admits to anything? Do you think we have to go to this like-minded approach for CBMs or are there global CBMs that work? Do we do it at a regional level? For us, CBMs are, and this goes back to the question of the regional organizations. We've seen regional organizations, frankly, as a place where, where it's easier to talk about CBMs. You know, in the OSCE context, CBMs are, are uh, a fairly natural thing. It's fairly easy to get an understanding around what a CBM looks like. That's obviously a lot more difficult in the ARF context, but, you know, work is proceeding there as well. The OAS is, has started to adopt some, some beginnings of some confidence building mm-hmm. measures. And each of these are appropriate and configured, if you will, to kind of meet the, the, the working processes and the understanding of the region that they work in. And I think that's right and, and appropriate. Universal confidence building measures are, are much more difficult to come by. When you have to agree at 178 on what these look like, you know, it, it becomes that much more difficult, which is why a lot of these conversations seem to be easier uh, and take place in the context of, of a regional organization. But at the same time, you want those confidence building measures to be connected back to the framework for stability in cyberspace. You know, the principles, the 11 uh, norms, as well as the application of international law in this space. Mm-hmm. So they're not divorced one from another, but some of the questions around implementation are easier to do in places other than the UN. Well, and sometimes it's explaining it too. Like as Jim said, if the, if someone says, well, what's the use of having a hotline if they always deny it? A hotline is not just used for that conversation. It's used for signaling, right? So I don't care if they admit to it or not and say it's a fair copy got me as long as they change their behavior or they know that I'm displeased about it and I'm communicating something. So that communication... Yeah. Is valuable even if you don't have the uh, people admitting they're taking out they, they've done something. Well, that that's entirely true. And we had a long conversation in the OAS context about confidence building measures. You know, there were people in the OAS saying, you know, we, we don't have these kind of rivalries within the membership of the OAS that you see internationally. So, so why would we want to do confidence building measures when we're generally not? worried so much about one another or concerned about activities uh, of one directed against another. And, you know, the response to that is, is that confidence building measures are, they build a, a, a certain amount of muscle memory. They create understandings and put into effect commitments in each of the participating country, which is going to be useful in terms of its overall approach to, to cyber issues. But I think the other, uh, another salient point in that is, is that, of course, cyber knows no borders. We all have seen the use of proxies or botnets that are located um, all across the world to launch um, uh, malicious acts or attacks, if you will. I got to be careful about using that word. And that could lead to misunderstanding. So one of the, one of the utility of confidence building measures is also to be able to create patterns of cooperation that allow for quick responses and to avoid misunderstanding when, you know, it looks like something might be coming from your neighbor, but really it isn't. It gives you a way to quickly resolve those types of questions to to mutual satisfaction. 
you know, I think that was understood in the in the OAS. And again, that kind of conditioned some of the uh, confidence building measures that they adopted. One of the earliest ones was, um, you know, points of contact from both the technical and policy perspective, so as to be able to uh, facilitate those kinds of discussions when when they arise. And it doesn't necessarily need to be about an incident that involves more than one state or seem to appear from one OAS state directed against another. It creates uh, an opportunity for conversations to take place about uh, about other events, international events, um, or or other forms of cooperation. You brought up international law in that discussion. Still, it's a, it's a place where there's a lot of need for greater clarity when it comes to cyber. What would you advise people when they think about international law? How how would you move forward with it? What would I want to say about international law in this space? What I would say is is that for us, the overall goals of what we're trying to do, particularly in the cybersphere, is to promote predictability, transparency, and stability in cyberspace, given all the risks of unintended escalation, of misunderstanding, and of accidents that are that are so possible in this space. And so in order to be able to do that, to be able to promote that stability, to, to bring about transparency, you need to be clear about the groundwork from which the ground from which you operate, the basis of where you stand. And so international law is quite simply the, the, the bedrock on which all of this is based. If, if we don't believe that international law applies to state behavior in cyberspace, then, then where are we? Then, then we are in a place where there are no rules. There Everything is entirely unpredictable. We don't have any a good understanding of what another state's intentions are in this space. Whereas if we do adhere to a commitment to international law, then you know we get things. We get that we are going to uh, refrain from the use of force or the threat of use of force straight out of the UN Charter. We recognize that there are limits to what is appropriate in terms of international law and what you can do in cyberspace. We recognize that states have rights of self-defense. All of these things are very important for being able to allow uh, strategic thinkers to understand what the implications of their actions are in this space. And it's that kind of transparency and that kind of mutual understanding that actually promotes stability. So I think, you know, I don't think you're asking me, do we think international law applies? But that's why I think that it's not a question that that doesn't matter. It uh, it's essential that states acknowledge their international law obligations, even if they say, "Look, a lot of this needs to be worked out in fine detail how it applies." But you got to start with the commitment to the application of international law. In this so everyone has agreed that international law applies. That's been true now for more than five years. Where they tend to break down is how it applies. So. What advice would you give, you know, on a global basis to say, here's how international law applies? I guess what I would say on that is, is that first, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> and I'm not, yeah, no. at least of all, an, an international law lawyer. So I'm not going to I'm not going to try and get in here on the finer details of, you know, how international law applies or, or what a Canadian position is on how international law applies. But, but I will say a couple of things. 
First off, international law is binding on states and is informed by what state practice is here in terms of, of what they do and, and what they state is true is what informs the development of international law. And so what I think is most important is not that we reach some sort of universal agreement as to how international law applies in this or that circumstance, but rather that states individually think about what their international law obligations are and that they inform their own processes internally with their military, with their cyber operators to re with respect to what their international law obligations are. And that they're transparent to the extent they can be about what their, what their understanding of their international law obligations are. Because when it comes down to it, each state is responsible under the UN Charter to ensure that its own actions are in compliance with international law. And if it feels that another state has violated international law in its view, then it has certain courses uh, of action that it can take. But it's all about the individual states at this point. It's not about trying to you know, sit down in a room in, the, in a basement in the UN and work out universally what we all agree the international laws are, how international law applies. But it's absolutely essential that each state have an understanding for itself what its international law obligations are. You know, there has been a move in the U.S. and other places to take a more aggressive posture and particularly to do more with cyber operations, kind of undefined exactly what that means. You know, in the U.S., it's persistent engagement. Other countries are engaged in it, too, to disrupt operations. But that has, obviously, you know, aspects of sovereignty and where that's done and how that's done. You know, how should all these things be balanced? I mean, there's those kinds of operations. There's diplomacy. There's economic tools. Do we have the right balance? Are we leaning too far on offense right now? Is there something we need to do to get that uh, at least better explained to the world community so that they understand what the you know like-minded are doing in this area? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not going to comment on on U.S. policy. No, and I'm not asking you to. I'm just saying that there's a, there's more globally. There's more of a move to say we need to do things to protect our own networks. We need to do disruption, and certainly, you know, the, the alternative sitting on our hands is not an option. It's just that you know how how do you see the balance overall that that should be struck? I, I guess I would say a few things on that. First off. You know, Canada, uh, as all NATO countries have done, has said that cyber is a legitimate domain of military operations, you know, just like air, land and sea. So, you know, we're, we're certainly in that group of countries say, that says that it is entirely legitimate for states to operate in this space. So, you know, I think that's where where we would start from. The next thing I would say is, is that what needs to be done is we need to be very conscious of the implications of our actions. We need to be very careful about unintended consequences or having our own actions misunderstood. I think that that's uh, that's a very important point. If if the goal is about stability in cyberspace, then you know we have to be concerned about unintended consequences and seeing our own actions misunderstood. Which goes back to that that question about being transparent about about intentions and capabilities in this space. But, you know, is the balance right? Should we be doing more offense or more defense? I mean, in a perfect world, of course, we wouldn't have to do any of it at all because, you know, we would all be uh, living in peace, loving happiness and all getting along perfectly. But of course, we do live in an imperfect world. But I think 
you know, in terms of the the offense versus defense, I don't think anybody can really argue with with the idea that we are not doing enough on the defense side. And you know, I come back around to something that I raised earlier, and the idea that you know we really do need to bring together the countries that are unified by by democratic values and a commitment to democracy and human rights to look at at the defense piece much more. You know, how do we protect our critical infrastructure? How do we protect our citizens? How do we protect our democracies from these threats in a way that protects our rights, protects our democracy, and protects the interests of our individuals as well? And I think really there's a huge piece of work that needs to be done there that draws in cybersecurity standards, that draws in questions around um, data protection, that goes into questions around privacy. And when I say uh, standards, I'm talking here about um, having reliable equipment, being able to believe that your device is, is operating in your interest and not in the interest of someone else. These are, these are areas that, that I think is, is ripe for greater cooperation. Uh, if oh, that's wow. arbitrary and capricious for us to keep you, and if we do it much longer, it will move from arbitrary and capricious to cruel and unusual. So, what would you say in conclusion, Michael? I mean, what's your what's your prognostications for 2021 and in international cybersecurity, and and what you want to achieve uh, for Canada and for yourself? Well, like I say, I really think that that we're at a moment with a growing recognition internationally, particularly among democratic countries of the urgency of these issues. There have been so many incidents over the last little while that are pointing us in the direction of having to come together to protect our democracies, our societies, and our economies. And I think, I hope, my hope for 2021 is that we will see renewed energy and a renewed drive to, among these like-minded countries, among these democratic countries, to settle our differences that have prevented us from cooperating in these areas uh, in the past and to be able to move forward with a more united front. In an ideal world, uh, we would be now able to take you out for a beer or a glass of wine. Uh, so we, we owe you one. Uh, you can collect whenever we get back together again. Uh, Michael, this has been uh, great, very thoughtful. Thanks for being on the show with us. Thanks for your time. I think this has been great. Thank, well, thank you. you so much for, for having me. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Singapore Cybersecurity Agency.